The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. We're continuing our study this morning. Um, In our last study, we looked at verse 9 of chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians. And we looked at it from more of a theological perspective. Well, this morning I want to go back and look at that verse exegetically. We want to tear it apart. Now, as we look at verse 9, I want you to keep in mind the context here. Context is king, so important. Verse 3 through 10, as I've said over and over, are one sentence in the Greek. And the subject of that sentence is the second coming. The subject is not the afterlife. It's the second coming. Keep that in mind as we go through this. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The majority of commentators, if you look up this verse in a commentary, they're going to use this as a proof text for the doctrine of hell. All right? Uh, almost every commentary I looked at talked about it, okay? And it's not a proof text, it's a spoof text, okay? And by hell, I mean eternal conscious torment. So, can this verse be used to teach the doctrine of hell? No, it can't. You know why it can't? Because the Bible doesn't teach a doctrine of hell, okay? There's no such thing. Now, in our last study, we looked at the Bible's use of the word hell. The word hell, or the concept of hell, is not in the original language of the Bible at all. So if you have a Bible and it says hell in it, it's wrong. It's a mistranslation. It doesn't belong in there. That, that concept is not in the Scripture. So you got a bad translation. Uh, I think they all do use it, though, other than maybe Young's. I know it doesn't. But you'll never get the traditional view of hell from the Tanakh. So I think the King James is one of the few that uses hell a lot through the Tanakh that shouldn't be there at all. But it shouldn't be in the New Testament either. But in the New Testament, hell is translated from the Greek word Tartaro once and 12 times from Gehenna. Now Gehenna was a place that had become identified in people's minds as a symbol of national judgment. The Valley of Hinnom, that's what it was about, the national judgment. So it's not a reference to eternal conscious torment. It's a reference to national judgment, which you can understand. If a nation is judged and destroyed, that's a bad thing. Okay, you don't want to be part of that. But it's not eternal conscious torment. It's a reference in the New Testament to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So Gehenna has nothing to do with eternal conscious torment, but most Christians think there's a place of eternal fire and torment called hell, which will be the ultimate fate of the wicked. Most Christians believe that. Gehenna, though doesn't have that concept in it at all, refers to national judgment. That's the background. So to answer the question, can this verse be used to teach the doctrine of hell? No, it can't, because... The Bible doesn't teach the doctrine of hell. So then what is it teaching? What's it talking about? 
Well, let's look at it and see if we can figure out. We should already know because we've been dealing with this text for a while. And again, this sentence is dealing with the second coming. He said, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Who is the they? Well, we've got to find out who the they is. So we back up in the text. All right. Let's go back up to verse 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. All right, so God's going to pay, repay the people that are afflicting them. That's the they. It refers to the people who were afflicting the first century Thessalonian believers. All right, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted. So <clears throat> God's going to come and grant relief. To the afflicted, he's going to judge those who are doing the affliction. When's this going to happen? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Yeshua. So those in Thessalonica, again, in the first century, who were afflicting the believers, were going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. When the Lord is revealed. Now, let's break this down. What is the punishment? Well, this is the Greek word decay, and it means a penalty, that which is right or just. This word is closely associated with dikaios. Anybody recognize dikaios? It means righteous. All right? So this is a penalty, a judgment that is righteous. What is that punishment? He says it is eternal destruction. Now, we got to really break both these words down because I think we think of eternal maybe in a little different way than it should be thought of. So let's look at eternal. This is from the Greek adjective ionios, which is the abjectal form of the word ion. Now, you're familiar with ion. That rings a bell, right? Ion is age. We talked about that many times. In most dictionaries, you will find that the meaning of the word is given as an indefinitely long period of time and age. Abbott Smith's Greek lexicon renders ion as a space of time and age, and ionios as age long. Now, if you're familiar with Young's translation, anybody know how Young's translates ionios? Age during, he says. Age during. Who shall suffer justice, destruction, age during? Now, I got to tell you, I'm not really crazy about that translation, okay? Because unless you understand that to the Hebrews of Yeshua's day, there were two ages. One of the ages was temporary, the other one was eternal. So in reference to the Bible's this age, Ionios is used in common figurative sense of a limited time. And in reference to things of the Bible of the age to come, the literal meaning of forever fits best. So the Greek adjective Ionios does not have to mean eternal or forever. But it's often translated that way, and it doesn't mean that way. For example, we see this in uh, Philemon 1.15. For this perhaps is why he was parted for you from a while, that you might have him back forever. Now, Paul's talking to Philemon here, and he's talking about Philemon's runaway slave Onesimus, 
And the word forever here, he's not going to get Onesimus back forever. All right, we understand that in this context. The context makes it limited. So age during would be a good translation here. But the overwhelming use of Ionios in the New Testament refers to everlasting or eternal, such as the eternal nature of God. Romans 16, 26. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, if you look up Ionios in Thayer's lexicon, here's how he translates it. He says, the first definition, without beginning and end, that which has always been and always will be. That will only fit with God. Nothing else. Okay. Secondly, he says, without beginning. Again, that only fits with God. Nothing else. The third translation, without end. Never to cease. Everlasting. So that would fit with eternal life. Alright? None of those fit with Philemon. Alright? So Thayer's definition, three, works with eternal salvation. For example, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Yeshua. It's without end. One and two will not work there, though. Alright? Because salvation is not without beginning and end, and which always has been and always will be, and it's not without beginning. So it's interesting how if you go to the lexicon and, and look at how people deal with this Ionios, it's just weird. They have different ideas. It's like there's no consensus because of the ages. You've got to understand, an age ended, so it can be age during, but there's an eternal age also. Out of the 68 uses of Ionios in the New Testament, only a handful of them can this word be used for other than an endless duration. So over 60 times it means an endless duration. And that's how I think most people think of it. You think of eternal, you think of, okay, it goes on forever. All right, now that we got that out of the way, let's look at this word destruction. They're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. This is from the Greek word olathros, which according to Thayer means ruin, destroy, death. Moulton Milligan, which I still don't get this, they say, the loss of all that gives worth to existence. Well, yeah, because it's the loss of existence. That's why it's the loss of all that gives worth to existence, okay? Because he's talking about death, basically. That's what Olathros is. It's death. So for some unexplained reason, and I have no clue why, most commentators translate Olathos as eternal conscious torment. I mean, like I said, grab a commentary, look this up. It doesn't make any sense to me, all right? This word is only used five times in the New Testament, and all of its uses seem to be temporal. None of it gives us the idea of torment the word can refer to physical death. And I think that's how Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 5.5. 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction, olathos, of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So, I think that's one of the main uses of olathos is death. Alright, so they're going to suffer the punishment of eternal death. 
Now, olathros is used of physical death in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Tanakh. So let's look at this. This is a 1 Kings 13.34. He says, And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off, and cut it off is olathros, and to destroy it from the face of the earth. So here it refers to the physical death of the house of Jeroboam. They're cut off, they're dead, they're gone. Now here's what's interesting. This is what I found interesting as I'm studying this. Olathros is also used in the Septuagint of the defeat of one nation of another, which really fits well into the context of what we're looking at here. Jeremiah 48, 2 and 3. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon, they plan disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. So this is coming against the nation. They're attacking Moab. You also, O madmen, shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. A voice, a cry, and heronaeum, desolation, and great destruction. So desolation here. Is Olathros. It's talking about a nation wiping out another nation. Jeremiah 51, 55. For Yahweh is laying Babylon waste and stilling her mighty voice. So this is a talking about the destruction of Babylon. Their waves roar like many waters. The noise of their voices raised or a destroyer has come upon her, upon Babylon. Again, destroyer is Olathros. In the Septuagint version, Obadiah 1.13, Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. So all these are from Olathros. They all these verses are speaking of the defeat of one nation by another, and they all use this Greek word. So we see from its use throughout Scripture that it's speaking of death and often death that comes from national destruction. Now the term destruction, olathros, in our text is the same one that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.13 where he is speaking of national destruction on the day of the Lord. 5.1, he says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now the phrase day of the Lord we went over that when we went through this chapter, is an expression taken from the Tanakh where it's used many times in regard to judgment that God brings on various nations. And usually it's meant a time of God Himself, He lets us know He's going to do this, and He's going to punish or judge people by means of the armies of another people. Alright, so it's called the Day of the Lord. We see this, for example, in Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon. An oracle is a woe, a doom, a judgment. This is about Babylon, alright? This is a judgment that's coming upon Babylon. And verse 6 says, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. So Babylon is going to be destroyed, and God calls it a day of the Lord. 
And then in verse 17, he says, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes against them, who will have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. So Yahweh used the Medes, brought them in, they destroyed Babylon. This is a historical event. It took place in 539 B.C. And this destruction is said in verse 6 to be from the Almighty, but the Medes were the ones who did it. God used the Medes to, God used the Medes to accomplish His task of judgment. Now, the invading armies of other nations brought judgment and destruction upon various nations. These times are called the Day of the Lord, when they were proclaimed by the Lord. Now, while the references to the Day of the Lord in the Tanakh can refer to various nations, because God brought judgment on a lot of different nations throughout the Tanakh, all references in the New Testament, and there's four of them, they all refer to the judgment that God brought about on Jerusalem. Not talking about any other nation, when you see it in the New Testament, it's national destruction and it's Jerusalem. So he says the day of the Lord is going to be the sudden destruction. So here Paul uses this word again, olathros, to refer to the destruction that happens on the day of the Lord, which refers to the second coming and the judgment that God brings. And that is also how it is used in our text. He says, to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance. So, this is an eternal destruction, he says. He's going to bring, when the Lord comes, when He returned in that time, He said this was going to, the people who were afflicting them were going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now, that's they, that's those who are afflicting them, will at that time suffer this. Now, this destruction is their death. And this punishment is eternal because there's no resurrection to life for them. They're dead, and they're going to stay dead. The destruction does not go on eternally. All right? The destruction happened, and they're gone. What is eternal is the result of that. They stay dead. That's it. There's nothing else that happens. They don't come back to life. It's, you know, people, how they get eternal conscious torment out of this, I'm just, it's totally making stuff up, okay, when you want to do that, all right? The destruction is eternal. And people have a hard time, well, the destruction is eternal. It doesn't mean it goes on forever. It happens and it's forever. The results are forever. Not the destruction. Right. You cannot be reversed. They're dead. Now, in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, G.K. Beale. G.K. Beale is a prolific writer. He's a good scholar. But he, he just follows the calf path here. And on 1.9, he writes this. The actual phrase, everlasting destruction. Olathros, Ionios, occurs only one other time in biblically related Jewish literature and refers not to annihilation, but to unending suffering in the afterlife. All right, I can tell you, they all want to make this about eternal suffering. All right? Now, let me just say here that Beal is wrong. Okay? And in our part one of this study, I said that all references in the Apocrypha, Maccabees is part of the Apocrypha, I said, all references in the Apocrypha to the end of the wicked is that of perishing 
except for one. And that's Judith 16.17, which talks about eternal torment. So, let's look at Maccabees, and let's look at this verse and see what it says, because I don't think people expect people to do that, though. Beale said it. Beale's a scholar. Buy it and go on, okay? You don't have time to be digging around on what he said and find out if it's true or not, right? I'll tell you, when you check up on people, you find some interesting stuff, okay? It'll make you shake your head, so do it, you know? Do some research. Maccabees tells the story of the martyrdom of the priest Eliezer, followed by that of seven pious brothers and their mother under Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what the Maccabees is about. Now, the issue in four Maccabees is whether or not Eliezer will obey the king by agreeing to eat the flesh of a pig in violation of the Jewish law. Jewish law, you can't eat pork, all right? And so Antiochus, he's trying to make them eat pig flesh. Eliezer refuses. So then they torture him until he dies. He refuses, so they keep torturing him until he finally dies. Well, Antiochus next orders the seven brothers who have resisted the order to eat pig flesh to be brought in and put them to the test also. The first brother resists. He cites Eliezer's example. So they torture him to the point of death, and he doesn't relent. The next brother follows his example. The rest of the brothers follow one by one until the last brother is brought in. Finally, it's the mother's turn. She, too, willingly dies rather than violate her principles. And the writer greatly praises her. Here's the text. 4 Maccabees 10-12. When he, too, had died in the manner worthy of his brothers, they dragged forward the fourth, saying, As for you, do not give way to the same insanity as your brothers, but obey the king and save yourselves. But he said to them, you do not have a fire hot enough to make me play the coward. (laughs) This is no soy boy, okay? These are the guys guys that Jeff was talking about last week, okay? Bring it on, you know, in the face of defying the king. No, by the blessed death of my brothers, by the eternal destruction of the tyrant, and by the everlasting life of the pious, I will not renounce our noble family ties. So in this text that Beale uses, he's talking about the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes, and he says, by the eternal destruction of the tyrant. Where do you get eternal conscious torment out of that? Am I missing something? I think it's a stretch at best to say, well, here's the same words and it means eternal conscious torment. How? Where? Beale goes on to say, the eternal destruction is defined by the context. Yeah, it should be. Not as annihilation, but as unending suffering of a persecutor of saints, which is virtually unequated with his eternal torture by fire. So yes, eternal destruction must be defined by the context. And the context of 2 Thessalonians 1.9 is not the afterlife. It's national judgment that happens at the second coming of the Lord. Olathros is used here just as it is in 1 Thessalonians 5.3 and just as it's used in the Septuagint to speak of the death of a national judgment. The death that comes at that time. The destruction here is death. 
And it's interesting as you dig into this word and its usage throughout the, the Scripture and the Septuagint and the New Testament, it just it seems to tie this whole passage together and, and speak way against what pe- most people are trying to make this say. The death is eternal because there's no resurrection to life for these people. They're unbelievers. They die. That's it. The death is forever. They perish forever. It's eternal. Again, it's not the punishment that's eternal. It's the result of the punishment. So what's going to happen to them? They're going to, be, they're going to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Now, this phrase is an exact citation of Isaiah 2.10, 19 and 21, again, in the Septuagint. Isaiah 2.10 says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of His majesty. And the people shall enter the caves and the rocks and the holes in the ground from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Does that sound familiar to you, that verse there? Twenty-one, to enter caverns of the rocks and the clefts from before the terror of Yahweh and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Each time, Isaiah adds the description from the terror of the Lord and the majesty of His power. This text in Isaiah is talking about the day of the Lord that would come upon Jerusalem. So the Lord in the Isaiah text is Yahweh who executes His judgment on the day of Yahweh which again ties Olathros with the destruction of a nation at the second coming. And if those verses sound familiar to you, they should because we see in Revelation chapter 6, 15-17 John picks up Isaiah's language to portray the terror of Christ's judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. Then the kings of the earth the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, and every one slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of Him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? This is the presence of Yahweh in judgment on national Israel. As in 1.9, the presence of the Lord is associated in a number of texts throughout the Tanakh and the New Testament with this idea of national judgment that God brings. He says He's going to remove them from the glory of His might. Now in the Tanakh, the most common Hebrew word for glory is kavad. And kavad originally was a commercial term, and it referred to a pair of scales... And it meant to be heavy. That which was heavy was valuable. It had intrinsic worth. So often the concept of brightness was added to this word, heavy, and the word, and it began to express the majesty of God. He alone is worthy. He alone is honorable. He alone is weighty. Now, he's going to be banished from the lord's presence and i think the idea that 19 conveys here is not merely that the disobedient will be excluded from the lord's presence they will be that's part of they're going to die and they're going to be separated from the presence of the lord forever but i think the emphasis here might be that the presence of the lord is bringing this destruction 
God is present in this destruction. He's the one doing it. So the context of verse 9 is not the afterlife. It's the judgment coming of the Lord. And the word Paul uses for destruction, olathros, has nothing to do with eternal torment. It refers to death. It refers to often death by national judgment. So how this happened, I don't know. Okay, But to use this verse as a spoof text for hell is eisegesis. Okay, you know what exegesis is, right? Exegesis, to draw out of the text. Exegete. Eisegesis is, put stuff in there. Put stuff in there, whatever you want. Just stick it in the text. This is pure eisegesis to take this text and say it means eternal conscious torment. Use other verses. There's other verses that make more sense than this. This that makes no sense at all. Commenting on our text, Richard Mayhew is a commentator. Again, they all talk about this. Says this. Outside of liberal and cult theology, not until recently have conservatives seriously considered the possibilities that believers are granted immortality only at the final judgment and that unbelievers are then annihilated or put out of existence. It has been generally accepted testimony of the church, and he's right there. It's been the generally accepted testimony that all humans will live forever. Believers blissfully in the presence of God, unbelievers in conscious torment in a real place called Gehenna or hell. Again, Gehenna has nothing to do with hell. Gehenna's natural judgment. <clears throat> All right, so Mayhew tells us that the doctrine of hell has been the generally accepted testimony of the church. Today, I would say that's true. But if you do a study of early church history, you'll reveal that the teaching of hell was foreign to the earliest followers of Christ. Why would it be foreign? Because there's nothing in the Bible about it. That's why it would be foreign to them. The doctrines of eternal torment and hell are the product of a domino effect that began with the acceptance of the pagan doctrine of the eternal soul. That's where it starts. Once it was accepted that man had a nature that could not die, it naturally followed that his punishment must be eternal. Right? As the souls of the wicked were eternal, punishment must be eternal, so hell became a place of eternal torment. The concept of the soul originated with Greek philosophers some 300 years before the time of Christ. Now, in the second century, it found its way into the early church where it became a fundamental truth of the Roman Catholic Church. And again, I think Dante has more to do with this than anybody you know, bringing this idea in. And the Catholic Church, through the Council of Nicaea in 325, and they just reinforced it in other councils as they convened over the next hundred years. So where did this teaching that man has an eternal nature that transcends death, where did that come from? Well, historical evidence reveals that it was first appeared among ancient Egyptians. I mean, people who do the research, they go back, the first time they see this thing about an eternal soul was the Egyptians were teaching it. Now, with the expansion of the Greeks under Alexander, the Egyptian philosophy of life and death became subject to be examined by the Greek philosophers. And Plato is credited with modifying the Egyptian philosophy of man, having two natures, so that it could be incorporated into the religion of the Greeks. 
And Plato taught that man had a nature that lived on after death and went on to a higher plane of being. Plato wrote this, The soul whose inseparable attitude is life will never admit of life's opposite, death. So he's saying the soul lives forever. Thus the soul is shown to be immortal. And since immortal, it's indestructible. We believe there is such a thing as death, to be sure. And is this anything but the separation of the soul and body? Being dead is the attainment of this separation when the soul exists in herself and separate from the body, and the body is parted from the soul. This is death. Death is merely the separation of the soul from the body. Now, the Greeks prided themselves on their superior intellect and philosophy. And their philosophers had been teaching an undying nature of man, and the teaching of these Greek philosophers found its way into Jewish society about 300 years prior to the birth of Christ, through the Pharisees and the Hellenization movement. Now, then early converts to Christianity brought the Greek philosophy of eternal soul into the early church. Origen, who lived from 185 to 254, was the first person to attempt to organize Christian doctrine into a systematic theology. And he was an admirer of Plato and believed in the immortality of the soul and that it would depart to everlasting reward or everlasting punishment at death. Uh, he wrote this. Origen writes, The soul, having a substance and life of its own, shall after the departure from the world be rewarded according to its deserts, being destined to obtain either an inheritance of eternal life and blessedness, if its actions shall have procured this for it, or be delivered up to eternal fire and punishments, if the guilt of its crimes shall have brought it down to this. So he's going on teaching what Plato taught. Again, calf path. They follow one another. Someone teaches it. You say, yeah, that's a good idea. You pick it up and you just keep following. Augustine did the same thing. For Augustine, death meant the destruction of the body, but the conscious soul would continue to live in either a blissful state with God or an agonizing separation from God. In the city of God, Augustine wrote, the soul is therefore called immortal because in a sense, it does not cease to live and to feel while the body is called mortal because it can be forsaken of all life and cannot by itself live at all. The death then of the soul takes place when God forsakes it and the death of the body when the soul forsakes it. Now, they're following after this Greek thinking and they're all just buying on board with it. Richard Tarnas, in his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, he points to this influence when he says, it was Augustine's formulation of Christian Platonism that was to permeate virtually all medieval Christian thought in the West. It did. It permeated. Everybody's picked up on this Greek thinking that they should not have. All right, he goes on. So enthusiastic was the Christian integration of Greek spirit that Socrates and Plato were frequently regarded as divinely inspired pre-Christian saints. All right, they thought, these guys are great, man. Whatever they say is good, right? Centuries later, Thomas Aquinas, who lived from 1225 to 1274, he crystallized the doctrine of an immortal soul in the Summa Theologica. He wrote that the soul is a conscious intellect and will and cannot be destroyed. 
Now, a few centuries later, the leaders of the Protestant Reformation generally accepted these traditional views, so they became entrenched in the traditional Protestant teaching. So for the most part, this is what the church today believes. It's Greek. It's not Hebrew. They've picked up on that. Now, the Jewish Encyclopedia states this. The belief that the soul continues in existence after the dissolution of the body is a matter of philosophical and theological speculation rather than of simple truth and is accordingly nowhere taught in the Holy Scriptures. I agree with that. Okay, the International Bible Encyclopedia states, we are influenced always more or less by the Greek Platonic idea that the body dies, yet the soul is immortal. Such an idea is utterly contrary to the Israelite consciousness and is nowhere found in the Old Testament. Now, does the Bible teach that man has an immortal soul? Is man created immortal? In the Hebrew Scriptures, the word, the term rendered soul comes from nephesh, which according to Strong's Exhaustive Concordance, nephesh means a breathing thing. By extension, a living creature, any animal of vitality. Vine's Complete Expository Dictionary of Old and New Testament Words defines nephesh this way. Nephesh, the essence of life, the act of breathing. How do we turn breathing into a soul? The problem with the English term soul is that no actual equivalent of the term or the idea behind it is represented in the Hebrew language. And when you see again soul translated in your Bible, uh, you better question that because it's nephesh, breath. All right? That's the idea. He says, The Hebrew system of thought does not include the combination or opposition of the body and soul, which are really Greek and Latin in origin. The Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible makes this comment in Nephesh. The word soul in English, though it has to some extent neutralized the Hebrew idiom, frequently carries with it overtones, ultimately coming from philosophical Greek, Platonism, and from Orphism and Gnosticism, which are absent in Nephesh. In the Old Testament, it never means the immortal soul, but it is essentially the life principle, or the living being, or the self as the subject of appetite and emotion, occasionally a volition. Let's look at what the Scripture says about this idea of nephesh. Genesis 2.7 Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. So God takes a bunch of dirt, makes this thing, and breathes into it. Now it's the breath of life. Living creature there. Uh, King James translates as living soul. It's breath. It's the, he became alive. Nephesh. It's referring to man, but watch how it's also used in Genesis 2.19. Now, out of the ground, Yahweh God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the term living creature here is also nephesh. But this time it's talking about animals. Do animals have an eternal soul? 
The translating committee of the King James Version rendered nephish as soul in 2.7 while rendering the exact same word as living creature in 2.19. You've got to wonder when they take Greek words like this and, you know, I mean Hebrew words like this and change them around to make them say what they want to say. In Moses' writings, the Hebrew term nephish is used in reference to the life that was given to both man and animal without implying any distinction between the two because it's breath. To be alive. Animals are alive. Men are alive. That's what nephesh is. It's the breath of life. Now, I think most Christians probably believe that Adam was created an eternal being. But the Bible doesn't teach this. If he was eternal, what was the purpose of the tree of life? And I think I can give you some absolute proof that Adam was created mortal... If we look at Genesis 3, 23 Then Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So if he's going to live, he has to eat of the tree of life, which means he's mortal. Therefore, Yahweh sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So he gets kicked out of the garden. He has no access to the tree of life. So he can't live forever. So Adam is created mortal. And he was always subject to death. However, in establishing the tree of life, God had given him the means to produce everlasting life. If he obeyed and was eating of the tree. But Adam sinned by eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. And for this he's subject to condemnation, which is spiritual death. He's separated from God. Notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the resurrection chapter. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's talking about death there, okay? That's what he means by sleep. But we shall be changed. In other words, the living are going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So the dead are resurrected. We take on a transformation. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. So when the Lord returns, the believers put on immortality because they didn't have it prior to that. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Again, the mortal puts on immortality at the second coming. That's when believers were given immortality because they didn't have it prior to then. All non-believers perished at this time. But believers put on immortality. (coughs) Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown write this. Nowhere is the immortality of the soul distinct from the body taught. A notion which many erroneously have derived from the heathen philosophers. That's where we get our theology from, from pagans, okay? Greeks. Canon George writes this, When the Greek and Roman mind, instead of the Hebrew mind, came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster in doctrine and practice from which we have never recovered. I agree. That's the whole thing. We The Greeks got in and we started thinking Greek instead of thinking Hebrew, and... The church has never recovered from it. We just keep going on the same path. 
All right. Hopefully, this study has shown that the Scriptures do not support the teaching of the traditional view of non-believers suffering in flames of fire for eternity. It's not a biblical concept. It's easy if you take that thought and put it in your head first, and then you read some Scriptures and you say, oh, that sounds like it, so that must be it. No, that's not how it works, okay? Man was not created immortal. Man is mortal until he trusts Christ. At that point, he puts on immortality. But believers don't trust Christ, so they never put on immortality. Okay, so if the Bible doesn't teach a doctrine of eternal conscious torment, why do so many people believe it? Well, because it's been taught throughout the church. As I said, the Greeks came up with the idea of the eternal soul. And if you've got an eternal soul, you've got to have eternal punishment for that soul if it doesn't believe in Christ. So we came up with that idea. Basically, here's what happens, people, in theology. And I think this is something we all can be guilty of. I've been guilty of it myself. We follow the calf path. S.W. Foss, I think, gives us the answer to why people follow this in his poem, Calf Path. Now, this is just an excerpt from the poem. It's a lot longer. It's a beautiful poem, and it helps you think that, well, that's the problem. We're all following the person in front of us, and nobody's doing any research on their own. Foss says, For men are prone to go it blind along the calf paths of the mind and work away from sun to sun to do what other men have done. They follow in the beaten track and out and in and forth and back and still their devious course pursue to keep the path that others do. The poem, like I said, is a lot longer, and it talks about a calf went through this, and men followed the calf, and then they built roads, and you wonder, why are these roads so crooked? Why are they go? They're just following the things that went ahead of them. And so many people, they just, you know, this idea that Gana is the garbage dump of Jerusalem. That gets thrown out, and someone, everybody jumps on it, and everybody, yep, that's what it was. No, it's not there. No evidence for that. Zero. But nobody researches it, because somebody came up with it, so we follow And again, I said, we can all be guilty of this. Just because someone said it, and just because someone said it who we think is credible, who is knowledgeable, who's a scholar, dig behind them. Don't, you know, this is why I try to put a scripture up when I'm quoting is I don't just give you a reference because I want you to see the scripture, okay? I want you to look at it. I want you to understand that's what it's saying. It's a doctrine that, again, most everybody believes, but there's no biblical evidence for it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity again to look at your word. Father, I was amazed in these past weeks as I've been studying this and how Olathros is so tied to national destruction and how you use that word so much for national destruction. It just really was eye-opening to me. Thank you, Lord, for the truth you teach us if we're willing to do some research. Father, give us the heart of Berean so we would study the scriptures to see if these things are so. Amen. Okay, okay, okay. Questions, comments? Gary Cole sends me First uh, Timothy 6, 15 through 16. King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortal, who alone is immortal. You know, that's definition that Strong gives, like I said, that, that only fits for God, Okay. The second and third one, second one only fits for God. The third one, yes, it fits for believers. They take on everlasting life. It goes on for eternity. It's an important word to do some research on because, like I said, it 
I think Young's can kind of throw you off there with age during. Did I throw you off by ending too soon? You know, is that the problem? <clears throat> it's not 1230 yet. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're like, no, he can't be ending yet. I'm expecting to put up with a little bit more time here. <laughs> all right, so we all got that. You're clear. Everybody online, I guess I'm not getting any questions. So I guess, uh, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means I did a good job and I explained it well enough. I don't know. I don't think too many people realize that the idea of Greek philosophy and how it's influenced the church and the church's beliefs, you know. And that's why I'm a firm believer against most odds that uh, the Bible was written in Hebrew originally. And the Lord spoke Hebrew. And he thought Hebrew and he talked Hebrew. You know, and that's important because the Hebrew language is a very pictorial language. And you get a lot more out of it than you can get from the Greek sayings. I don't think the Lord ever said I'm Alpha and Omega. I don't think he's dealt with Greek concepts like that. Aleph Tav. First to last. All right, we done? Wow. Oh, wait. Some, oh, there they go. Wait a minute. My phone um, is telling me <laughs> it says suspected spam on most of these questions. <laughs> wait a minute. Oh. Thank you for your message today. It amazes me how the gospel today is almost always filled with the needing to make a decision so that God can save you, save your soul from hell. This is not the biblical gospel. Nowhere in Acts is this taught. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, you're right. It's not in, you know, none of the disciples went out and said, you need to trust Christ or you're burning hell. Nobody said that, okay? But, again, the church is so overrun now and one of our biggest flaws is we're not thinking people for the most part anymore. We're just kind of, okay, take the easy road. Someone said it, I'll buy it. That's simpler. From Norm, excellent. Please tell people to pray for Gary DeMar. He's being persecuted. Yes, he definitely is because he's asking questions. That's just rude. I mean, why would you ask questions about the Bible? You're not allowed to ask those questions. This shows you the corruption of these partial preterists, these creed-loving, mother-church-following people who only have to, you know, you've got to be the creeds. You know, these collar-wearing hypocrites, okay, who want people to bow down to them because they're up there with their little creeds and collars. You know, it's nonsense. Why would you ever confront someone from, you know, asking questions about the Bible. That's what should happen as you grow. You read stuff and you say, I don't understand. This doesn't seem to line up with what I've always been taught. And you start asking questions. And in most churches, you get the right foot of fellowship for that, okay? Right out the door, all right? Because, hey, we don't like to be questioned. You know why? They don't have the answers. <laughs> so it bothers them to be reminded that they don't have the answers. So, yeah, it's, it's sad. Yes. <laughs> Great message as always. Please let Jeff know that his message last week was spot on and really hit home with my family. Thank you. Appreciate that. Jeff, did you hear that? It was spot on, brother. No soy boys. <laughs> we are Sparta. 
Linda Connor from Washington State says, I share you I share you on Truth Social every week. Well, cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. Truth Social. Love it. What is the difference between Hebrew and Aramaic? They're different languages. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah. There are differences in it. They are similar language, but they are different. And again, a lot of people want to push this idea that the Bible's written Aramaic. No, I just don't think so. Again, okay, Yeshua was a Jew. Born a Jew, raised a Jew, raised under Judaism. They spoke Hebrew. It was, he was in Jerusalem. That was so important, okay? So I think, again, the Bible, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on this. I think it was originally written in Hebrew. There's a lot of Hebrew metaphors in the Scripture that you wouldn't see in Greek. And so when you see them, you know, they've got to be coming from Hebrew to come up with this idea. So, again, we could fight about that till eternity, but... Um, yeah, till we find the original manuscripts. Isn't it interesting that we have none? I mean, God did that for a reason, I guess. Okay? But, again, I'm seeing more scholars come out with this idea. They think, hey, it looks like Matthew was written in Hebrew. Yeah, I wonder why. Um, they're mostly Hebrew or Greek. There's some Aramaic in there. Yeah. <laughs> Gary and Chris said, good morning. Why is it that most people in the church choose not to believe what you and the Scripture had made clear? What is it that Christians don't have... Why is it that... No, what is it that Christians don't have a deep desire to search proper hermeneutics? I don't... <laughs> My my answer to that question, Gary, would be people are lazy. They're lazy, okay? So it's a lot easier to slip in church, hear three points in a poem, feel good about yourself, and leave. Instead of being convicted about something or, you know, get into all this, you know, people say, well, you sound like you're teaching a college course. I hope so, okay? I hope you all are college level, okay? We're not in grade school. We're not in kindergarten anymore. We don't need pictures and we don't need poems, other than the cat path, of course. <laughs> hey! Mark this day down. I close with a poem. I didn't have three points, but I did have a poem. All right. So that's important. Yeah, I think, you know, people are just today. They're not they're not into doing research on any subject. Just they buy in what they're told. We're told something must be true. Look how many people wore masks. Look for how long they wore them. Still, I know, people are still wearing them. And I shake my head. I'm like, oh, my word, what is wrong? This goes to what Jeff taught last week. It's just educated to not be educated to do that. Yeah, they're educated not to think, to believe what they're told, to follow along, don't ask questions. I, you know, And when you ask questions, it does rock the boat. People get upset. Why? Why do I have to do that? They don't like They don't like that at all. <laughs> When I was a youth pastor here in the area, the pastor hired me and he said, as long as you do a good job, I'll leave you alone. I said, okay, sounds good. At the staff meetings, he'd be, you know, bothering everybody. You do this, you do this, you do this. And we'd leave the staff meeting and all the other pastors would go, how come he never gives you assignments or tells you stuff? And I'm like, because I question him and he hates that. Because I'll say, why do I have to do that? He sent me for lunch one time. I need you to go pick up lunch. I got lunch and I came back. I said, I'm not hired as your lunch boy. I'm a youth pastor. Okay, I'm not doing that again. He did not like being questioned, so he just left me alone. 
and I just got such a kick out of it because the other pastors didn't catch on. You know, the pastor was six foot eight. He was the most insecure man I've ever met. <laughs> At that statue, he was very insecure. Didn't like being questioned, so he left me alone. So it worked out for my good. You know. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, David and Goliath. So what's a good positive expression for what happens now when the child of Yahweh dies here on earth? They go to heaven. I don't, a good positive expression. You go to heaven, you step into the eternal realm. I don't know that heaven's a place. You, I think we have immortality right now, okay? But we step into that realm, we put on an immortal body that's suited for that realm, and we dwell forever with the king. Now for those who don't know God, when they die, they're gone. They perish. Because they're not immortal. And they die. So I guess that's pretty positive to me. You go to heaven. You go to the realm of the Father. Falsters here. Seems as long as there's money in fear-mongering and using Revelation as daily horoscope, we have plenty to share the truth with. Yes, you're right. And again, that's one of the ways you find the truth. Follow the money. Okay? Really, just follow the money. Especially if you're talking about health stuff or medical stuff. Find out who's making money that publishes the studies. Okay? I mean, there's several studies. You know, this whole idea that in the 80s, meat is bad for you. If you eat meat, you're going to get a heart attack and die. I've done some research on the studies. Three doctors were paid. They were paid to lie on these studies. This has all come out now, and it's evident, and we know it. Okay? It's just, it's just sickening is what it is. Someone wants to get a study to go some way, so they hire people and they make it go the way they want it to. And you know, this, I forget who did the study, but it came out, seven nations proved this. He did a study on 26 nations. The other ones didn't fit the narrative, so he eliminated it. Seriously. Seriously. People push their agenda and it's just, it's absolutely sickening. Okay? Because tell you the truth, I've been doing a lot of research on this, and I've been doing carnivore for a while now. Carnivore diet, ain't nothing but meat, butter, eggs, and water. Bacon, yeah, a lot of bacon. A lot of bacon. You know, have you been told bacon's bad for you to ruin your heart? That's bull, okay? It is bull. You look at the studies now that are coming out. All right, And they're finding out. I've seen people who are desperately sick with autoimmune disease. They go on a carnivore diet. All these immune diseases go away. They're healthier than ever. We had a guy visit here several times. He's been carnivore, strict carnivore, for three years. He is a good poster child for the carnivore diet because he looks like healthy as he can be. Eats nothing. And he's a strict carnivore, okay? Water and beef, bacon and eggs. Yeah, no ice in the water. I don't know, ice is not, not carnivore, I guess, but no coffee, because coffee's a bean and I can't eat it. So, oh man, it's just, I'll tell you, it's frustrating, you know. Like I said, they have lied to us about everything. Every, I don't care what subject it is, they've lied to us about it. I don't know why, but people do, all right? Uh Gary, Gary and Chris and PA, thank you today for such a refreshing message. I always felt that the sovereignty of God is one of the most important aspects we need to know in our salvation. I agree with you. It's also great to get away from Dave's complicated teachings. Just kidding. Oh, this must be... It must be about me. Yeah. 
<laughs> Just kidding. We love David and his deep giving knowledge and teaching. That must be for you, Jeff. But it, um, but it's under today. It's under today's P.S. We should never be a respecter of people, as they say. Enjoy your teaching today. Yeah, I, that's weird. I, it's got today's date on it. It's got it's a timestamp. Okay, I'm trying to figure out where this starts. I understand now that you will be with me in paradise. I understand now that you will be with me in paradise. Linda Connor, Washington State. I share you on oh, Truth Social. Read that. That's why you feel it when you accept Yeshua. You changed. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with Linda about feeling it because some people have. I've been in testimony services. Someone said they got saved and it felt like warm honey got poured over them. And I thought, yuck. <laughs> but here's the problem with that. What happens when you get saved and you don't feel the warm honey? Then are you not saved? See, it's not about that. You know, it's about truth. It's about belief of the truth. And you can know if you believe something. You know if you believe something. You know if you don't. If you believe something, you take Scripture at its word. And you are the child of God because you have believed.